0: Hello and welcome to Woman with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Seascale in Cumbria. The granddaughter of a miner and a farmer, she attended Winton School before spending five years at Sellafield, a nuclear power company. She went on to work at Copeland Council for another six, while completing a foundation degree at Salford University, before being selected to run as a Conservative candidate in the 2017 Copeland by-election. It was the first win for a governing party in a by-election since 1982. As the first time Copeman had elected a Conservative MP since 1931, it was also seen as a major blow for Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party. On arrival in Parliament, the Times sketch writer Patrick Kidd described her debut speaking in the Commons as a maiden speech, swan-like in its grace and beauty. In it, she thanked her daughters. Having four daughters aged 14, 15, 17 and 18, I was delighted to tip the balance of female MPs to 456, equaling the balance between all of history's women members and the current number of male members, she said. Since becoming an MP, she has introduced a 10-minute rule bill to ban wild animals and circuses, sat on the education committee and served as a parliamentary private secretary for several departments. In December 2019, she went further and was made Boris Johnson's PPS. On her appointment, she said, To serve the Prime Minister so closely in Parliament is a huge responsibility and an honour and one which I will take incredibly seriously. So to discuss that and more, my guest today is Trudy Harrison. So thank you very much for joining us today, Trudy. We really appreciate you finding the time. On this podcast, we like to begin by asking everyone the same question, which is, would you describe yours as a happy
1: childhood? Yes. Absolutely, yes. It was a very um, nurturing, loving childhood. I was very fortunate to be born into a kind family. And whilst my dad worked away from home most of the time, I think he was probably working at ICI Wilton when I was very young, and then out to the North Sea to work on the oil rigs, mum stayed at home to look after me and then my little brother arrived seven years later But I have very, very fond memories of going to my nana's farm, playing on the hay bales with my many cousins, enjoying tray-baked Yorkshire puddings made in the Aga, and visiting my other grandma who'd make crinkle-cut chips. It's all about food, this, isn't it, my childhood memories. But the other wonderful thing was the amount of wildlife that we managed to bring back to life. We were always going out on walks and finding birds and little animals to nurture and bring back to life and that was a very fond memory I have of my childhood mainly I think because of my dad who sadly isn't with us but that is something that he has instilled in me and which I've instilled in my girls. I do actually remember when dad was on the oil rigs blast from the past kind of funny memory I must have been about seven actually. One of his jobs was working as the lifeboat driver as well as an instrument mechanic. And he came across two cormorants that were covered in oil. So he brought them back into his bunk room, which he shared with two other guys, washed these birds down. I think they were called shags, actually. Washed them down, stored them alive and getting better in his shower cubicle, then brought them down over on the helicopter from Aberdeen to Seascale, And we nurtured them in our back garden and then eventually let them off on St. B's Cliffs. And I've got so many happy childhood memories of moments like that, of nurturing wildlife back to life. So an animal-loving family early on. Yeah, very much so, very much so. Dad could fix anything. And if he wasn't fixing machines, he was in nature.
0: Now you've said that you've always been a conservative, you're brought up that way, is that because it was a political upbringing you had or, or something else?
1: No and it was only when I became an MP that I learned that my grandma on my dad's side was actually a conservative campaigner but I never knew this, you know, she was a woman with incredibly high standards, she'd lost her husband. My paternal granddad was a miner. You know, he died before I was born, so she um, she had an incredible social life. She lived on a council estate, Thornhill. A garden was immaculate, and she would take me folk dancing, and just had the best time with friends, even in her nineties. But I later learned that she was a conservative campaigner, and I also learned that my granddad on my maternal side was a strong conservative voter but that was never discussed you know in 43 years I think it was when I uh 41 I think I was when I became an MP that was never discussed at all but I think all the values that I'd grown up with about working hard and personal responsibility positivity pragmatism all that kind of thing was absolutely instilled in me and I think those the kind of ambition and determination and the ability to make what you want of your life are very much part of the conservative ethos for me at least
0: and how was school for you were you a well-behaved child or not so much
1: it kind of got worse as I got older to be honest I was a very chatty girl primary school absolutely fine certainly wasn't an academic flyer and tended to daydream quite a bit, to be honest. I found myself going off into worlds which were far more exciting than the maths lesson. Um, No, school actually wasn't that great. I left with no good GCSEs, thought I'd become a nanny, and had to take a um, a kind of one-year filling course, which was a BTEC in hospitality at the local college. That then led to a job as a travel agent, which I really enjoyed. So my aims of becoming a nanny were effectively kiboshed because I was a travel agent and then I later moved to Sellafield.
0: Yeah I wanted to talk about um, moving to Sellafield but I suppose first did you have any early career, well you had the nanny ambition I suppose because you had some people in the, but you weren't thinking about politics when you were young.
1: Absolutely not, I didn't even know what politics was. No, I wanted to be a nanny, loved children, was very good with babies and children and knew of nothing else really. And um, now obviously we're here
0: because you now work in Westminster. But um, I wonder about your path in, because you go on to work at your local council and you also uh, served as an independent parish councillor. And I was just wondering, can you talk us through how you went from that childcare business to to starting to do those things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when we moved to the village, by which time I had most of our daughters, I certainly had Gabrielle, Savannah and Francesca. Rosemary was actually born in the little village of Bootle. I was quickly asked if I would like to join the local PTA, which I thought was a huge honor. Coming from a big town where you're a little fish, you soon realize that you can be quite a big fish in a small village because they're run by volunteers. And the social life is going to some kind of meeting every evening where we're planning on how we're going to raise money for an essential service in the village. That's how it, it ran. So I was really delighted to be asked the question. I became chair of the PTA parent teacher association and then as my children were all getting to the age where they were all at school I let the the nursery go and joined the parish council and I joined the school governors and it was there that I learned that actually the school was really jeopardized we'd lost 20 businesses in 20 years in our village This school, Captain Shaw's, had been built in 1829 for 140 little learners, but the numbers had really dwindled. Um, My daughter was the only one in her class, um, in her year, and it was bleak. I could not see a way of saving the school. The council had said it must close. It was also bleak on a national front. This was kind of 2007, so there was the financial crash... There were the headlines about how much debt our children and grandchildren would be burdened with. Knife crime was on the increase. The headlines nationally and the news locally felt dire. And I personally felt powerless at that time. I had a big fear of public speaking. I had no experience of community leadership, really, other than being part of these groups. But it wasn't real leadership. So anyway, I um, talk about women with balls. And when I think back, it was crazy. I made a decision that there was no future for us in the Lake District, in the village of Bootle, or even in the UK. And I would pack up our transit torneo. We bought a doer-upper to keep my husband out of mischief. So he set to work on that. I took the girls to the south of Spain, enrolled them in a Spanish state school, Nobody spoke any Spanish at the start, but by God, we didn't have to learn quick. And um, I think they would probably be then four, five, eight and nine, something like that. And we lived there for an academic year, absolutely threw ourselves into the culture, discovered that the girls all played musical instruments. So they were welcomed into the local Academia de Música. So they were welcomed into festivals, fiestas, carnivals. And I discovered my unique selling point was being a fairly confident driver with an eight-seater. And lots of the Spanish mums weren't confident about driving into the big city. So this was my thing. I made lots of friends by being useful. And we loved it. But what we learned is that in somewhere like Spain... You have very little voice. You really struggle to affect positive change in your community because the mayoralty and councils were pretty corrupt at that time. There were no community plans or councillor kind of opportunities. And I realised, speaking to quite a few expats, that the reasons they had moved to Spain to avoid knife crime and challenges with immigration, that kind of thing, were not the problems that I experienced in my little Lake District village. And I remember thinking, we've got to go back and fight. It makes me emotional now, honestly. It's ridiculous. So the following year, we made a a decision to go back to Bootle. And I, gruesome balls, overcame my fear of public speaking, gathered a group of mainly mums together, formed a community plan team, and set about on an ambitious plan to breathe new life into Bootle for future generations and got a job as a regeneration officer in the local council in 2010. And that was the start of my political journey because not long after that, the Comprehensive Spending Review was announced and I remember the Labour leader of the council inviting us in, I was a member of staff, and it was just doom and gloom about what would happen to the council, what would happen to the area. And I just thought it doesn't need to be like that. We can help, you know, people who've been made redundant find better jobs. We can do things differently. Then the big society, do you remember that? That came in and it was something that really resonated with me because the way villages work is around volunteerism. It's around collaborating with shops and business owners and so this big society proposal was just me through and through it's what i wanted to do and i was able to kind of shape a role in the council where i would go out and help community groups achieve their priorities I became experienced in funding applications and planning applications. I put myself through university one day a week at Salford to undertake a foundation degree in sustainable communities, which was really helpful, actually. And thoroughly enjoyed that job for three years until 2013, when I just realised that I wasn't going to make sufficient headway with the way that this council was running. And I was invited by private investors to work with them on socio-economic projects which would be investing in my area and that was the next step really.
0: Um, so you come back, you are now completely, you're focused and it sounds like you're fired up. <laughs> at this point.
1: I am, yeah, absolutely fired up and in 2012, it was the 12th of April 2012, we were delighted to have the council overturned their decision to close Captain Shaw's school. It had just 14 children in it at that point. I could finally take off my bear suit because I worked for the local authority. When I was out campaigning, it wouldn't have been ideal for me to be identified. So I dressed up as Boo Bear and danced the streets, you know, protested on the A595. Uh, Yeah, so finally I could uh, remove my bear costume and celebrate that we'd managed to save the school but we hadn't just done that we'd come up with an ambitious plan to invest 20 million pounds we've got a new fire station new housing development called victory gardens new bmx track the community just really came together and we were able to pull in the funds not just for our village but for a raft of communities in the area Now, when I was working for the private investors, I realised that we had the community plans. We had the local council on board. We'd managed to convince the Lake District National Park Planning Authority that they had either the key to our future or the death knell in the coffin. And thankfully, they chose to give us the key to our future. So... Very locally and more regionally, we were able to shape policies because of community planning, because of democracy, because of can-do people who know their area best, being positive and looking forward to effect change. But we were struggling nationally because I think where I live in West Cumbria, it takes me about five hours to get to work, to get to Westminster. So we never felt we would be anybody's political priority. And when the opportunity arose... When the Labour MP announced that he was standing down, I just thought, gosh, we really need to secure a nuclear power station because that will unlock so much of our future for West Cumbria. Who is going to put themselves forward? And I remember it was Boxing Night. It was still 2016, actually. So Jamie had just resigned a couple of weeks earlier, I think. I was in the pub. Half a bottle of Prosecco later, my friends managed to persuade me that I should stand as a candidate. And they were all thinking I would stand as an independent because, I, you know, this was testament really to my lack of talking about politics with even the people nearest and dearest to me. But I came home that night, it would have been two or three o'clock in the morning probably, and I went through some of the party manifestos, and listened to Theresa May talking, and thought, that's me, that's who I am, that's what I want for my community, that's what I want for my country, and it was really a pivotal moment, and I spent the next week, given that this was Christmas and New Year, thinking about how I could possibly do this, no good GCSEs, I got my foundation degree, I had a severe dose of imposter syndrome, but a kind of similar high dose of determination. Was your husband egging you on? Not really, no. I remember telling my mum and dad, my mum said, Trudy, who said you could do that? And my dad said, "Mm, nobody likes politicians, Trudy. They were
0: both right. But you you go for it and you get selected as a candidate. Were you surprised to be selected for the candidate?
1: Not really, no, because given the state of my area at the time, And the things that needed to be done, I felt utterly confident that I was the perfect match. Female, grown up in the area all my life, you know, family going back many generations. Granddaughter of a miner and granddaughter of a farmer. My um, dad had worked at Sellafield. My husband at that point probably had about 38 years service as a nuclear welder. My brother worked in the nuclear industry, I didn't know then that my daughter would go on to work in the nuclear industry, but that was a a really important, fundamental part of my campaign. Meanwhile, Jeremy Corbyn wanted to decommission all existing power stations and not build any new ones. That was absolute toxic in my community because we're incredibly proud and call ourselves the centre of nuclear excellence. So I was a Brexiteer, patriotic. I felt I was a perfect fit, and thankfully so did the Conservative Party at the time.
0: And you you were here, you win that by-election.
1: You've actually had to
0: keep that seat in three votes now, you think, by-election two elections since then, which is quite,
1: quite a lot for a, a, just a, a couple of years. <laughs> I think it probably is a record. I've tried to look into this. Three elections in less than three years. Um, the 2017 general election was absolutely horrid. I remember kind of two o'clock half past two in the morning waiting outside in McDonald's car park about to go into the sports centre thinking if I've lost this I am at peace with myself because I am not prepared to get into the gutter it was absolutely toxic the big issue at the time was the threat to maternity services And I'd been born in this hospital. My four daughters were born in the hospital. I'd said that so many times. I was passionate about retaining maternity services at West Cumberland Hospital. But there were kind of fake handwritten letters going around. And on the front page of the newspaper, it said a vote for Trudy would kill seven babies a year. I remember my dad reading that, and it really affected him. It was horrible.
0: I was going to say, but I think perhaps you've answered it, I mean it's clear when you thought about going to be the MP and particularly a conservative MP, there was some hesitancy or, you know, protectiveness perhaps from your family about what that would mean for you. Um, So have you you been taken by surprise by how vitriolic it can be?
1: Um, To some extent, I mean, if I could have made a bulk purchase of some kind of potion to give a thicker skin, don't get me wrong, I would. Of course you can't. Some of it doesn't, really worry me at all but that particular aspect when it was something that I stood to do something about that and then was being attacked for trying to do something about that it sickened me and yeah I think what it did to my dad in particular was awful now you're in
0: parliament we talked about the 2017 general election but I just wondered as someone who's obviously so invested in your local area and really came up through local issues and local politics what surprised you about Westminster or parliament because there's some MPs who are you know they go down the special advisor route and therefore they're they're very used to the systems whereas you're coming from quite a different perspective.
1: Yeah but it doesn't matter and I think actually I've realised that The aspects of my life that I've maybe been embarrassed about, not having good GCSEs, having a Northern accent, having a family young, I was pregnant at 21, absolutely planned. But, you know, all of those things I'd maybe felt previously held me back in life. Of course, the only thing holding me back was me. I know that now. But being in Westminster and mixing every day around the tea room table... With people who are incredibly wealthy, incredibly successful, incredibly well-educated, we're actually realising that the things that make us tick, the things that we want to talk about are all the same. It's about our children, it's about what we want to achieve for our country, it's about where we want to go on holiday and experiences, it's about jokes. You know, it's made me realise that regardless of how much money you've got or how educated you are or how well bred you might be actually we've all got this similarity as humankind
0: so you have a few jobs quite early on as a PPS and you're sitting on the education uh, committee I think PPS is ultimately the lowest rung ring of the ladder when when you're starting to to do a bit more and it's also known as glorified bag carrier
1: (laughs) paper passing service Paper passing service was the uh, description I was provided with, yes. (laughs) But one
0: of the things I think with that job is often people say, well, that's how you get up. Move on, that's how you get up. But it perhaps is a bit harder if you have a full family and things because it's often working slightly on God the Hours, doing, uh, you know, as you say, passing paper and um, perhaps not the high minded work that some people think they're going to come in and do. How did you find starting to do all that stuff? Did it work with having a big family at home? Was it, Was it stressful?
1: Yeah, I mean, my girls through necessity are very independent. I do sometimes think there's a fine line between kind of feral and independence. So by age eight, they were all able to operate the washing machine and make themselves their tea and breakfast. So they've been really independent girls. But to be honest, working in Westminster, it wouldn't really matter whether I was working a six hour day or a 16 hour day because I am more than 300 miles away from home. So didn't really have an impact at all. But it's brilliant being a PPS. You just learn about the department. In a way, there is such a privilege. I've worked in the Ministry of Defence, the Department for Education, and that was absolutely fantastic insight, to be honest, to how the country runs essential services. I also worked across the Department for Transport as well. So, no, it's far from being a paper-passing service. It's actually a brilliant insight. You're able to find out things about your constituency that you might not otherwise do. Really enjoyed it. And to be the Prime Minister's PPS is obviously a, a huge privilege. I think there was one pivotal moment I remember when I found it really difficult. Our family dog died. I remember getting a text through because I was in the chamber from... One of the girls who'd said, Harry's just collapsed, what should I do? Take him to the vets, of course, texted back. They got to the vets and they found that Harry had cancer and they put him down there and then. My husband was in a cell on the Sellafield site. He couldn't be contacted. I was just about to speak in the chamber and I couldn't leave. There was no you know, remote opportunities back in those days. And thank goodness I could call on my mum and dad and they helped the girls get through were able to bury the dog that you know it's moments like that when I felt absolutely torn but it's like what Kelly Clarkson says what doesn't kill you makes you stronger
0: a good motto for um working in Westminster. <laughs> now, you you mentioned that you're the Prime Minister's PPS, so he has two. One is, one is Alex Berker, and it, you've kind of been billed as his PPS, probably uh his voice of the North, so to speak, when it comes to that that group of MPs. So is that is that what's a day in the life as the Prime Minister's PPS like in that role?
1: Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, me and Alex are worlds apart. He is a doctor and PhD, educated. Uh, He's fantastic. He lives in the driest part of the UK. I live in the wettest part of the UK. We are worlds apart, but a great team. He's brilliant to work with. And in terms of our daily routine, it's mainly preparing the PM for PMQs. It's helping with any statements We've had quite a busy weekend, it's been fair to say.
0: Yeah, we're recording this, uh, just going straight on the, the weekend after we've had a change of health Secretary after Matt Hancock has left.
1: Yeah, so our job is essentially to feed in the concerns and suggestions from members of Parliament directly to the Prime Minister. And I, as somebody who's worked and believes passionately in industry, naturally gravitate to concerns about the steel industry, energy industry, particularly the nuclear industry, and and focus on that side of things, but also looking at how we can improve our relations around women in the population, the policies and its impact on women, and also our parliamentarians as well. So it's fantastic to be the Prime Minister's PPS. He is a wonderful boss to have. He is utterly inspirational. I wish more people could see the Boris Johnson that Alex and I see, actually, because what I see on a daily basis is the optimism, the enthusiasm, the determination and ambition for the country and just an, an absolute kind of grip on what he wants to achieve and urging everybody around him to have that same determination and ambition for our country.
0: Um, Now just one more thing on that I just wondered because you mentioned how you're doing one of the things you're doing is trying to bring more women in and, and policy for women so it'd be interesting to hear hear about that but often number 10 is written about as this blokey place um it's very macho I think particularly when it was the the vote leave uh team in there uh, it was a bit and I just wondered what's your experience of it is it macho is it getting less macho is it not <laughs>
1: It is a little bit on the macho side, but I think that's partly to do with just the nature of politics. The words that we use... Well, I say we. I do not use words like annihilate, destroy. But I think that has been the kind of natural language of politicians for generations. So that's what we're contending with. But actually, I think other parts of society... Women and a more caring way of doing things is showing that it's a better way of doing things. And that's a great change to see from my perspective.
0: Now, I've just got a few very quick final questions. So you mentioned energy. Obviously, we're talking about Cumbria and there's been a lot about the Cumbria coal mine. Uh, We've also got COP26 coming up. Where where do you think you sit on this? Because we're talking a lot about net zero. And I just wondered, is the, the Cumbrian coal mine compliant, can that work? We don't know what's happening with it yet. Yeah, can it work alongside um, something like a net zero target? Because there's been a bit of a debate in the Tory Party on
1: it. Yeah, I mean, my take on this is one of pragmatism. If we agree that we're going to need steel, and at the moment, about seventy five percent of the world's steel is made in blast furnaces, which need coking coal. Coking coal is one of the twenty seven essential raw materials that are, you know, reported on at the moment by the European. Union so if there's an agreement that we need steel and just to put that into context to build one of the Rolls-Royce 470 megawatt power stations it will take 180,000 tons of steel I just do not think it right that we can import that steel from say China or that we can import that 2.177 million tons of coking coal which is what we did in 2019 from places like Russia, or Brazil, or the United States. When we have a particularly high-quality, high-volatility coking coal, metallurgical coal, in the UK. And that's without talking about the £165 million of investment that it would bring, the 500 jobs, the 2,000 indirect jobs. When you think about how steel is used, in wind turbines in solar panels in factories to build solar panels in trains in the tracks to build the routes for the trains in electric vehicles there is going to be an ever-increasing need for steel and i think we need to be responsible and as far as possible have an indigenous supply for our steel industry um and do you think your colleagues are hearing that well it's it's now had its politics taken out of it to some extent and um, we have a public inquiry on the 9th of September which will run for 16 days but it's difficult because the headlines are sensational the words call mine create an uncomfortable unpalatable thought in many people's minds and it only it really is only those people that take the time to understand the industry Understand the increase that's anticipated for the steel industry and understand actually how steel is made. It's essentially an alloy. Without carbon, you've got iron. And iron is far too brittle to be building the things that we need to build today.
0: Now final three quick fire So the first is just um you mentioned you've had a busy weekend, just while I have you just have to ask, do you think Matt Hancock made the right made the right decision to leave his role after after what came out?
1: I spoke earlier about maternity services and it was both Jeremy Hunt and Matt Hancock who have enabled about £140 million to be invested in the local hospital that I was born at and we have, say, say, maternity services. So I owe a huge deal of, you know, gratitude and I will forever to both Jeremy and Matt. That said, I think... Matt himself realised that his position had become untenable. And it's sad after all of his hard work and success that it's ended this way. But as the final sentence in the Prime Minister's letter stated, he has a lot more to give to public service.
0: Now, final two, more light. How do you cope with stress? I think we might have had a hint when you were coming in because you're one of the few guests to bring in, um, well, I think it's a gift.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not a bribe, not a bribe at all, Katie. It was definitely a bouquet that I popped out in my garden and picked. And as I look at it, we've got a fantastic array of various sweet peas. We've got a couple of different dahlias. We've got some chocolate cosmos, which smells divine. majors, uh, Some pincushion flowers. Basically, I'm quite into gardening. I mean, I'm really into gardening. It is my new maternal instinct I've nurtured my daily tubers since early March and woe betide anybody that knocked them as they were trying to get past them because they did take over my conservatory. Yeah, this is now my first love. It's blooming marvellous, it really is. And I'm not sure really what I'm going to do with it because it has become an utter obsession. I deadhead, you know, whenever I can... Sunday mornings, 7 o'clock, it's on with the wellies, out into the garden. And if I have my way, I won't come back until it's dark. It's just fantastic. And I don't think I'm the only one that looks forward to 9 o'clock BBC2 to watch Gardener's World. The problem is, because I've been out gardening, I end up falling asleep before Jobs for the Weekend comes on. I don't know whether you watch Gardener's World, Katie.
0: I don't have a garden, unfortunately.
1: Oh, my goodness. Well... Do you have a window box? No. You don't grow
0: anything? My, my fiancé's got plants in the study, so he's got something. He's got actually, one of those kind of electric growers that kind of can grow some herbs. But yeah, we don't have any outdoor... I'll work on it.
1: I started with houseplants, actually. That was my introduction. And monsteras? Have you got those? Oh, goodness me. Yeah, I'll I, I lick it in. I don't, yeah,
0: I've obviously got a lot of work to do.
1: This is a national trend. You really need to get with the programme.
0: It's a zeitgeist. <laughs>
1: um so with
0: that while i go and work on my plant skills um the final question we're going to ask is when we ask everyone on this podcast which is just what's the worst advice you've ever been given and we've had a mix of answers on this podcast so we recently had katie Perry on our last episode he was saying um it was that she should get elocution lessons um to which she said no um but i wondered does anything strike strike you when you think back on your career and what we've been talking about
1: Yeah I mean I know I was definitely advised that taking the girls out of the school at that particular age would be really damaging to them and and I didn't take any notice of that. I've never really been (laughs) one for advice to be honest. I don't ask for advice. I don't even like cookery books because I feel like it's somebody telling me what to do. I really don't really appreciate it. But I do remember when I was putting myself forward as the candidate for MP for Copeland, I was advised to put a wedding ring on. You know, I'm I'm married. I got married at Gretna Green on Christmas Eve uh, 20 something years ago. But I've never worn a wedding ring. And I actually took the advice and bought one. Maybe it was serendipity. It was particularly cold during that January. And when I was leafleting in Cleetamua, at some point on an estate in Cleetamua, my wedding ring slipped off my finger and into somebody's house and never to be seen again. Never wanted again. Um, Why did you choose Gretna Green? I'm going to sneak in a final question. Well, to be honest, um, my husband wasn't really up for this marriage lack and I... Gabrielle had been born. I was quite keen to have the same surname as her. So when my husband agreed that he would marry me on the 10th of December, I found the quickest place I possibly could, whisked him up there and job done.
0: (laughs) No room for changing of minds.
1: (laughs) Pragmatist through and through, solutions operated kind of girl. Thank you so much, Trudy. That was brilliant.